Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deviation Approved Podcast. In today's episode, we are speaking with Mr. Gary Black. Gary is a retired naval aviator. He has flown the F-4 Phantom, the F-14 Tomcat, numerous other aircraft, and after retirement, he became a civilian test pilot. Gary was around the early days of Cirrus aircraft and was involved with certifying the airframe parachute on the SR-20. While you are listening, if you can, safely, follow along at aviana.net and um, find our show notes for the Deviation Approved podcast, and you can see some pictures from Gary and his time in the Navy, um, as well as with Cirrus. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Gary Black. Good morning, Gary. How are you today? Good morning. I am doing great. It's uh, sunny up here in Duluth, uh, light, uh, covering the snow on the ground, and it's a great day to go flying. Well, you say it's sunny, but how many feet of snow have you had so far? Believe it or not, we've had 30 inches of uh, snow, but there's probably about six inches on the ground right now. Okay. So, but um, winter's well on its way. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't had much here yet. I'm, I'm still running on summer tires, actually. So we're, we're lucky down here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, 2020 has been one hell of a year. Let's, let's jump back to 2019 for a second, because I, I thought 2019 was a pretty great year. Can you tell us about when you found out that there's a new Top Gun coming out? How did you feel about that? A new Top Gun coming out? Uh, obviously, I saw the, the trailers and I knew it was going to be uh, Hornets with uh, Tom Cruise. and But then uh, at the very end, they had a F-14 come over the horizon. Of course, that gives everybody uh, goosebumps and uh, chills. And I knew it was going to be a great movie. And I was all excited to take my family. But obviously, with the, uh, the COVID, the uh, theaters couldn't open. And they wisely uh, deferred the, uh, the opening of uh, Top Gun 2 to... Uh, Probably 2021. Yeah, they they pushed it back twice now, haven't they? They have. They went from uh, early summer to maybe the fall, and then I haven't heard when the new one is. But uh, Tom uh, Cruise would be getting pretty long in the tooth to be flying uh, (laughs) any fighters. Right, right. Well, he's he's still a, a captain at this point, so his career hasn't progressed well enough for him to get out of the cockpit. Right. Um, when so when the first Top Gun came out, where in your career were you? Um, you know, obviously you went to the real Top Gun. So uh, was that 1984? The first Top Gun came out. I 84, 85. I was actually over on the aircraft carrier USS Midway, home ported in uh, Yokosuka, Japan, and I was flying F four Phantom because that aircraft carrier was too small for uh, Tomcats. Okay. Uh, I went through Top Gun in 1980, and uh, it wasn't a school that, well, you send your top fighter pilot to, you actually send your best instructors to, because you only got one air crew slot every other year, because every other year you were deployed on the aircraft carrier, and that was typically a seven-month cruise with three-month workups. And this crew that went the Top Gun is supposed to, to learn all this knowledge and then come back and typically be the weapons and training officer and then come up with the training plans to instruct the other 11 crews in your squadron. So if you go through uh, three or four or five squadron tours, 
you basically have a oh a thirty percent chance of actually getting to a Top Gun. So, so and it it is a really just another school to us, but it, it certainly is one that can save your life and is very combat oriented. Sure. So, so it's really more of a train the trainer type of school, right? Yeah, that's uh, the best way to put it right there, yes. Okay. Um, so when you you were in Japan flying the F-4s, that was after you had already put time as a F-14 real, right? That's correct. Okay. Uh, um, so if we go way back, so I, I know when I was seven, I was watching Top Gun because I was born in 87, so Top Gun had been out and... Uh, my parents recorded it on VHS off the TV so I could just entertain myself for hours on end. Um, what was seven-year-old Gary like? Well, I had to go back a little bit farther. <laughs> the, what got me into aviation, uh, my dad was in the Air Force. He had played football at Baylor University and was an uh, Air Force ROTC that just started up after World War II, playing football for the Baylor Bears. And they were going to go to the Orange Bowl, and the coach didn't want to lose his football players to the, the draft, so he got his football players to uh, enroll in Air Force ROTC, and my dad was one of the few that graduated. And he went to the Air Force and actually was training on B-25 multi-engines, but here's a guy that's six foot six and 240, and now the Air Force is transitioning to these small jets. Uh, and he was too big for those. But our, our first tour ended up being up in uh, Isleson Air Force Base, Alaska, even before Alaska was a, a state. But I remember there were uh, U-2s and other airplanes. But my favorite airplane, uh, as I was a toddler, my dad would come in with a B-58 Hustler model mm -hmm. and blow up our uh American uh, bricks, which were the Lego of the days. So we kind of did our engineering to, to try to build structures that couldn't be blown up by a nuclear bomb from this B-58 Hustler. Um, so in high school, uh, my brother ended up going to the Air Force Academy, and he was actually the, the first uh, nugget or student pilot to get his wings to go right into the F-15. Um, I was a year behind him, and I did not want to go to an all-boys school at the time. I had greater aspirations for college, and I took an Air Force ROTC four-year scholarship and went to Michigan State. Uh, but I was planning to go to vet school. And But after your sophomore year, you go to summer camp, and they take you off to an Air Force uh, base, and they put you in a T-38 Talon, which is a trainer, but supersonic. We did that at Moody Air Force Base in Georgia. And all of a sudden, when you go supersonic and you're doing loops and rolls, and all of a sudden vet school uh, decided it could be deferred, and I was going to stick with uh, this uh, jet thing for a while. I, 1976, I got commissioned, but the Vietnam War had ended in 1975, and the Air Force was doing a drawdown. So of our class of 20, only two of us were gonna go off to pilot or nav school. My roommate got the pilot slot, I got the nav slot. And then they did our post-commissioning physicals and well, Gary, your, your heart rate is, uh, oh, it looks like a, a 43, you need to have a heart rate of 50 to fly fighters. 
Um, your future is going to be C-130s or C-141s or C-5s. And that did not appeal to me. And I, at that time, I found out the Navy actually had jets, too. And uh, went to the recruiter, and they went, well, you can't do a cross commission right now, but you can give up your Air Force commission, and you can enlist in the Navy and go through a program called Aviation Officer Candidate School. Uh, do you remember the movie An Officer and a Gentleman with uh, Richard Gere and Deborah Wingert? I'm afraid I don't know. Okay. Well, you have to look that one up okay. on Netflix. And this is where a Marine Corps drill instructor PTs, you know, uh, and beats you up over, you know, uh, four months. But at the end of that, then you get commissioned into the Navy. And so I went through that program and got commissioned. And then uh, started, this was down in Pensacola, Florida. And my first flight was in a T2 Buckeye, which is a twin engine, mid-wing, high-tail airplane. And that was a lot of fun, two-seater. And then you go into the A4 Skyhawk. Uh, we called it the scooter. And that was an <laughs> attack airplane from Vietnam, but also a trainer. And then we went into a T-39, which is a... North American Rockwell modified as a Navy airplane to learn radar work. Okay. That, that's like a business jet, right? Like a small kind of business jet looking thing? It is. Yeah. Exactly. It's uh, what uh, Bob Hoover used uh, to fly. Oh, okay. Uh, if I remember correctly. And uh, so in my class of uh, 20, uh, there were four uh, fighter slots. Uh, Two of them were going to the East Coast to uh, Oceana, and two of them were going to the West Coast at Navy Miramar, or fighter town. Uh, back then, I was uh, young and single, and I thought everybody out in California was out there surfing and uh, playing guitars and uh, dating women. I thought that sounded like a better deal. And headed out to San Diego and went driving in and reported to VF-124, the uh, F-14 replacement air group for the RAG. Okay. And I went to this class of about 12 people, and we had POWs uh, and ACEs and people that had thousands of hours of uh, F-4 combat time. And here I was with 75 hours in my logbook. <laughs> and they're putting you in a F-14. <laughs> right. So now... Let me remind everybody, I was Goose. I was the uh, backseater in the F-14, um, and I had no stick time logbooks, pilot in command, so I, I needed to catch up to these guys real quick. So I learned to fly the F-14 during the day, and that night I went down to Montgomery Field, and I would hop in a 150, and I'd learned to fly in that. So I think I soloed at 10 hours, I got my private license at 42 or whatever, but then I continued on, uh, did my commercial in a, a Beach Sierra and a Citabria. This was before they had tailwheel sign-offs, okay. so I've got hundreds of hours of tailwheel, but no tailwheel endorsement because it wasn't required back then. Okay. So are you grandfathered in for that then? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell. Yes. And... Uh, and then uh, literally uh, my 
F-14 training was cut short because I needed to uh, man some squadrons, and I went to VF-213, the Fighting Black Lions, and started uh, workups uh, with them and deployed in 1979 and 1981 on the USS America. So one of the things, um, you know, you look at the movie Top Gun, you know, obviously not super realistic but one of the questions i had is how often do you fly with the same pilot do you have that kind of dynamic maverick and goose relationship or are you assigned to a plane and and it's kind of like a commercial airline where you don't know who your front seat guy is going to be so uh a little bit of both uh typically a squadron has uh uh 12 crews a fighter squadron and you have 12 airplanes, but only probably 10 are airworthy at any given time. One's typically uh, going through a corrosion and one's going through an engine swap. So you have 10 flyable, you get your name on the side, but it's a, a roll of the dice on which airplane you'll get on any given day. Uh, so we typically went 201 to 212 on our airplanes. Now, air crew, you try to partner up with a pilot real combination. A senior pilot will fly with a junior real. Real is radar intercept officer. And a senior real will fly with the nugget pilot coming to the squadron. So in my case, I was still an ensign when I got to my squadron and I flew with the skipper, uh, Terry Applegate, and so there's a lot of pressure to fly with the skipper and perform well. Sure. And then uh, typically the skipper leads these alpha strikes of 50 airplanes when you're doing your air wing week workup. Uh, an alpha strike might be two squadrons of A7s, one of A6s, one of EA6s, an E2, two squadrons of F14s, and you're doing the radio comm for this 50 airplane uh, airstrike. So that's intimidating. But as a, a real gets more and more senior, you're flying with junior and junior pilots. So your life only gets more dangerous. <laughs> so your so first means. time landing on a carrier isn't your front guy's first time landing on a carrier then? That's correct. Yeah, that, okay. That, that would be terrifying but, uh, if it was on both the other hand, first times. Uh, that uh, pilot's first time landing on a carrier within the F-14 is with a instructor Rio and back okay. and their first night landings and their first instrument landings. So, but, uh, yeah, so it's a, but you, you try to match up with a, that crew and you'll probably fly 80% of your flights with that person. But, you know, people, uh, still have, uh, you know, squadron duty officer ones, you still, um, match up with other pilots as needed you know and so it, it all works out okay is there is there any way to control an f-14 from the back seat or is it strictly in the front seat for uh, flight controls so i only have uh, one major control in the back that i can determine what's in the back it's called the uh uh, ejection uh, master select. <laughs> okay. I can pull that handle back, and if I eject, the pilot's going out as well, and I have the canopy at a jettison from the back. Other than that, it is 
all uh, voice-activated uh, pilot interconnect. You know that you know I can uh, tell them what I want the plane to do, and he or she uh, does that. Sure. So no, okay. there are no controls in the back uh, for flying the airplane. Are most two-seat Navy aircraft that way? Or the F-18s that way, and the F-4? Uh, to my knowledge, uh, it is all uh, weapons uh, in the the back seat. Okay. Uh, okay. You know, unlike the uh, F four in the Air Force, they had a stick, but the Navy ones did not. Okay. Um, oh, interesting. So, I have, to my knowledge, uh, even the F eighteens are all uh, you know uh, no controls in back. Got it. Okay. So going back to when you were learning to fly, while you are flying in an F-14, what was that like going from F-14 to, I mean, you probably have a payload on that F-14, like a single bomb that weighs more than the Cessna 150. You're right. The, uh, each Phoenix missile was a, a thousand pounds. So our typical loadout, uh, on the boat was two Phoenix. So there's 2000 pounds, two Sparrow missiles at about uh, 500 pounds a piece and two sidewinder heat-seeking missiles uh, and then two uh, drop tanks so so we are typically carrying about 6,000 pounds of jettisonable fuel and weapons on the airplane and the oh, the 150 probably weighs 2,000 pounds uh, gross yeah did you have a uh, civilian flight instructor for that or, or was that a, a Navy instructor I had a uh, military person that uh, taught uh, part-time okay. and then I ended up going and getting my uh, flight instructor rating and I taught flying when I was assigned at the Naval Academy and just kept it all current. Sure. Okay. And I would say maybe half the, the Rios in my squadrons were civilian pilots and um, many of us uh, owned airplanes and many of our pilots owned airplanes and it was kind of interesting in the air force my brother's side uh, very few of them were civilian pilots but they had boats <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i i think it, it it either way i think it'd be very difficult to go from a fast jet like that and then fly a bonanza and be like oh okay now now we're flying in something that goes 180 miles an hour Although one of the neat things was uh, when my different pilots found out that I was a civilian pilot, oh, can I go flying with you? I've never had my kids up in an airplane or my oh, wife sure. up in an airplane. You know, I so I would uh, put them up front or their kids up front. And, you know, when you're flying the F-14, it's kind of like the airlines. You know, this is your job and your mission. But when you can go in a general aviation aircraft and take your kids flying, uh, I remember uh, taking my brother flying, who was an F-15 guy and a United Airlines pilot, and we uh, took his kids up flying, and they got to see him up front. Dad, in 20 years, we've never actually seen you at the controls. This is so incredible. Yeah. So so I encourage all uh, military and airline pilots uh, to fly civilian as well. Sure. So um, after... At which point did you get called to Top Gun? Was that while you were still with the Black Lions? I was. Uh, we had just uh, done our initial uh, cruise, and basically, let's see, 79, we 
we did uh, three months of workups, and that was land-based. And then in January, February, March, we uh, would deploy on the aircraft carrier uh, in the Caribbean area off uh, Puerto Rico, and that's where the entire air wing learns uh, anti-submarine, strike, uh, air-to-air. And then we uh, deployed for seven months over in the Mediterranean. But this was during the OPEC uh, fuel crunch, uh, so we actually didn't get to fly that much. Uh, It was pretty tough, and we actually had a number of accidents just because people lost uh, currency. I think we lost maybe five airplanes on that uh, that cruise. Oh wow! Uh, uh, Yeah, back in my day, we were probably losing. Oh, I would say. 200 airplanes a year in the Navy and maybe a hundred crews, you know, so it's, uh, but we had a, a lot of different airplanes. We had A3s and A4s and A6s and A7s and F4s and F8s and F14s. And, uh, it was quite a variety on the, uh, the aircraft. Uh, yeah. When, I mean, if you're in aviation long enough, you know, obviously, you're you're gonna lose people to accidents, and um, I mean, for me, that that took probably about six, eight years until that happened to someone very close to me. How mm-hmm. how do you guys manage that? Is there is there some sort of debriefing that the Navy does? Um, you know, do you try and get back in the air as quickly as possible, or is it different every time? So I, I've seen a, a number of airplane crashes and ejections and uh, and losing people. Fortunately, we did not lose somebody in our squadron during our tour. Um, so, but I certainly attended enough uh, chapel services for you know while I was in the training command and and in the rag where we we lost people and you know you always play the eternal father at the end and. The next day, you, you show up for your uh, 6 a.m. Uh, brief, and you get on with it. Uh, if there's, like, three accidents in a week, they'll do a a fleet wa- or a, a nationwide safety stand-down, uh, and everybody goes through a safety uh, briefing and figuring out what's going on. Uh, if you're on the front lines, you can't do a stand-down when you're out at sea. Um, and then we go through a lot of every accident is uh, reviewed and uh, analyzed and everybody in the fleet goes over every accident to figure out how can this uh, chain be broken. Sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the unfortunate things in aviation, but I, I don't think, you know, if someone has a car accident, no one really learns from that, right? In, in aviation, right. I, I think we really jump in and look at all the factors that have gone wrong and and that's you know, that, that's kind of the one positive thing out of an aircraft accident. Mm-hmm. Um, so after Top Gun, another tour on the America or? Correct. Uh, so then uh, 1980, I actually uh, got married. But the reason was my wife was back in college at Michigan State. And as a bachelor, every time you went to sea, you lost your... $200 a month housing allowance because that eight man bunk room on the ship was considered uh, housing. Yeah. So I made a, a deal with my uh, girlfriend and said, Hey, uh, why don't we get married and I'll split this $200 a month with you. You can use it 
towards college. I can put a hundred dollars a month in my savings account. And we thought that was a pretty good deal. So we got married uh, December 27th of 1980. And on January 2nd, I was back uh, with my squadron uh, deploying. So, and then the, the next year, 1981, we actually saw each other six weeks. She would come over and meet me in some of my port calls in Singapore and Australia. And here we've been married uh, 40 years now. So there's my uh, tips to uh, newly married people. Uh, spend your first year apart and you'll have a long uh, wedding <laughs> or a long anniversary. Yeah, I, I think you might be onto something there. Um, so you guys, I, I don't know, was this after the Navy? You guys bought a Belenka? Yeah, oh, good. Uh, so uh, we did our... 1981 tour and I really wanted to spend some time so rather than teach people in the F-14s I asked for an assignment at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland and I got orders there and I was on the operations staff and because I was one of the few aviators there they uh, put me in a program called VTNA so VT stands for fixed wing training NA was Naval Academy and we had Varga Kachinas. Have you ever heard of one of those? Um, I think did uh, I think I just saw someone buy one. Yeah, Mike Bush. Uh, so uh, it looks like a little T thirty four with a hundred and eighty horsepower engine. Yeah. And, and it was fore and aft with a stick, so it was great to introduce a midshipman to uh, aviation, and we would take them basically through a solo and verified that they wanted to go down to uh, Pensacola and learn to fly. So I, uh, I got to, to fly with the uh, midshipmen and do their indoctrination uh, instruction flights and that. And that was a fun little airplane. But uh, my wife and I were looking for airplanes and in our Navy flying club we had uh, little Grumman AA2s. It's like a two-seat uh, Yankee. Yeah. And uh, we had Piper Warriors and 172s, but we had one uh, professor that had a Mooney 201, and boy, my, my wife was hooked on speed. We, <laughs> so we love speed. You married well. Yes, and but we only had ten thousand dollars that we could, you know, get a loan for. For and my, uh, we decided we wanted a Blanca Cruise Master because it was fast, retractable gear. You know, we need to at least go 140 miles an hour. But uh, uh, my wife actually found the uh, the broker when I was sailing from uh, well, I was sailing a 60 foot uh, sailboat with uh, eight midshipmen, actually from uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, down to Bermuda, and we were, uh, we got stuck in some doldrums and some storms, so we were going to be a couple of days late. My wife uh, met a, a naval aviator at the, the bar there. Imagine that. <laughs> but he was a aircraft broker, and she told him what we were looking for, and he knew of one out in San Diego. And so when we got back to Annapolis, uh, we went ahead and bought it sight unseen. We didn't know how to buy airplanes. Sure. <laughs> but maybe only one of these comes on the market every 10 years, so we bought it flew out to San Diego and tried to find a flight instructor that had flight time in a Blanca Cruise Master. Guess how many we could find? Probably two? Zero. Zero. None. <laughs> so we had somebody that had tailwheel time, and so they said they'd uh, 
you know, go around the pattern with me once, and they had no idea how the, the landing gear worked or the flaps. It, it was hydraulic flaps and hydraulic landing gear. Okay. And a controllable pitch prop, not a constant speed. Six-cylinder uh, wood-winged airplane. And we did three landings there, and they said, you're good to go. And we uh, signed the uh, the airplane, and, and then we started our cross-country across the United States, uh, you know, uh, and so that's a, a cool story in itself, but Springerville, Arizona, and then probably Dalhart, Texas, and Kansas City uh, downtown, and then Indianapolis, and and then actually as we started getting back towards uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, um, we got into some pretty intense uh, rain, and this airplane was uh, IFR certified without a transponder or artificial horizon. Oh. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're partial panel, basically. Even uh, starting up, yeah, we had yeah. a needle ball was our primary instrument. Okay. We had a horizontal uh, compass. But then uh, we're flying along, and all of a sudden my airspeed uh, starts uh, going from 140 to 130 to 120. So what's the natural thing? Well, I better put the nose down. And you can see the VSI going down, but then the airspeed's going 100, and then the landing gear horn starts going. Well, the, you know, I don't want to put the landing gear down. What's going on here? And I, I level off so the VSI is zero, and then the star warning horn comes on, ding, 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 which was literally a electronic or a, a bell. Okay. Keep Mechanical so you got the bell. Ear horn, and sure enough, it airspeed goes right to zero. And hmm, well, we're still uh, flying. We're holding air altitude. We don't know what our airspeed is. So I give a, a radio call to uh, Washington Center. Hey, this is Blanca five two four Alpha. We're IFR. Our airspeed's gone to zero. Not an emergency, but we could use your help right now. <laughs> Uh, what's your intentions? Well, we'd like to continue on to the Fort Meade or BWI and, you know, uh, make a, you know, all I could do was make a, a VOR approach is the only thing. And I had a radio that you could, it was a Narco 12, not a 12A, but I could either navigate or I could talk. You know, you could, you kind of had the toggle between those two choices. Okay. Was your wife on board for all of this? Yes, she was. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> And basically uh, what had happened is the pitot tube had filled up with water. So that blocked the, uh, the airspeed. And so they went, uh, squawk so-and-so, well, we don't have a transponder. Okay, fly your uh, triangles. Do you remember those? Um, I, I never got to flying triangles, no. Yeah, that's one of your emergency procedures. So you turn 60 uh, degrees, fly about a minute, turn 60 degrees, fly a minute, and on one of those angles, your propeller will be at 90 degrees to the uh, the radar, and I have a wood airplane that's fabric, so it's not reflective, oh. but your uh, propeller at one of those will uh, get a hit, sure. so, they, okay, we've got your position, fly heading 090, maintain 7,000 feet, and so we do that, and after about 10 minutes, they'd go fly your triangles. And 
then they'd get another hit on us and know where we are. Okay, drop down to five, drop down to three. And I think at three, we're, you know, they're basically flying us right over Washington, D.C. Okay, we can pick out U.S. uh, 50. You know, uh, we'd like to drop down to 2,000. Well, that's below radar coverage. Uh, Fine, we're going to take, we're going to cancel IFR, drop down to 2,000 feet, which is probably, you know, 1500 AGL and seeing US 50 but we'll talk to you and tell you where we're at and sure enough just before Annapolis we could see where we could turn up land at Fort Meade made our landing and that was a great time to ask my wife hey can we invest uh, three grand and upgrade the instruments in this airplane and she said yes (laughs) it's almost like you planned that yeah we got a transponder and a heated pedal tube and an artificial horizon Wow. I mean, what, and we actually got a radio that you could talk and navigate at the same time. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a hell of a first flight in a brand new airplane to you. Yeah, it was a 1951. There were uh, 99 of them ever built. We held on to that airplane for 17 years and restored it into an Oshkosh Award winner. And that's what I actually... When I was hired by Cirrus Aircraft, uh, I flew that up from uh, Florida to meet them at Oshkosh on uh, day one. Very cool. And that's another fun story. Just leaving uh, Florida, the generator died. Oh. So that meant you had uh, no nav and no uh, radio. Yeah. So basically uh, flew that, uh, the old IFR, I fly roads, and went up to Rockport, Illinois, landed called the Oshkosh Tower and said I'd like a Nordo uh, entry into uh, Oshkosh and they yep we'll give you the light signals uh, you know go ahead and fly do the rip on arrival and watch for light signals what year was this uh, this would have been 1997 okay was this basically your job interview with Cirrus at this point uh, no uh, they had uh, I, they had lost uh one of their uh, astronaut test pilots, uh, Bob Overmeyer. So they were looking for another test pilot. I was a test pilot at Piper at the time. And I sent in my uh, resume, faxed it, if you guys remember how faxes work. They never work. That's how they work. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we got one phone interview from uh, Scott Anderson. And he says, well, you'll be hearing from me. And Two days later, two airline tickets uh, show up in the, the mail, and why two? And well, they believed uh, having the spouse come to the interview and see uh, Duluth and Cirrus was important. So we flew up to Minneapolis, and my wife went, "Where's Duluth?" I said, "I have no idea, but we changed <laughs> planes in Minneapolis, and we got to uh, Minneapolis, and Duluth was fogged in." So we. Uh, uh, Scott had actually left his car down there in Minneapolis, and he was up in Alaska picking up a uh, Piper Super Cub. He said, oh, just the keys are in the, uh, the uh, cup holder. You know, you can drive my car up there. So imagine finding a car at Minneapolis, St. Paul. Right. <laughs> driving up through the, the fog in uh, Minneapolis, and we never saw anything beyond the quarter-mile fog, but we were so impressed with the people at Cirrus that we uh, said, yes, we'll come. Yeah. So we we did have an in person interview with uh, Dale Clapmeyer, Alan Clapmeyer, and Pat Waddick. 
So let, let's take a step back. So after the Navy, did you go to test pilot school right after that? So I had a, uh, uh, the Navy had sent me for uh, a master's in aerospace engineering. I wanted to apply for the astronaut program. And uh, my bachelor was in medical technology. So they uh, they said, well, you can go do a two-year program, get your master's in aerospace engineering. Uh, well, I, I don't have an undergrad in uh, engineering. Well, that's no problem. We'll give you six months of uh, um, what they call stupid study to do your four years of engineering. Okay. And so there were six of us in that program, and we did our calculus and our physics and our thermo and all our mechanical and electrical engineering in six months. And then we did our master's in uh, aerospace engineering and a couple of the courses of that were uh, going to uh, uh, national test pilot school down in Mojave and doing uh, 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 flight testing so it's kind of a, a short uh, flight and academic course there we used a de Havilland Dove for uh, some of the flying there but that kind of gave me the uh, the credentials uh, when I retired from the uh, the Navy that I could uh, be hired as a uh, civilian test pilot. Uh, so uh, my first uh, job after retiring from the Navy, uh, this was back during the, the Clinton drawdown, and you know thousands of uh, aerospace engineers were being laid off by Grumman and Boeing and everybody. So I I went on the road and. Cessna was uh, not hiring. They weren't even building airplanes. Piper was in bankruptcy. What year would, would this have been? 1997. Okay. Uh, so I retired from the Navy, went down to Moultrie, Georgia. And what airplane companies out of Moultrie, Georgia? Oh, I couldn't tell you that. Mall Aircraft. Oh. They build the, uh, the Bush planes. Yeah, they're in Georgia, huh? Yeah. And I, I thought they were back, Swiss. Uh, B.D. Mall and June Mall. He was a founder and designer of the country. It's like beating Walter Beach or Clyde Cessna. Mm -hmm. And he didn't care about F-14 times or a master's in aerospace. Son, do you have a float plane rating? Yes, sir, I do. Son, can you fly tailwheel? Why, yes, Mr. Mall. In fact, I even own a tailwheel. And he threw a set of keys on the table and he said, Son, you're hired. There's a new float plane out there, water. Go uh, flight test it and certify it. So so that was uh, my start of my test pilot career. Okay. I did that for a, a couple years. And uh, because the, they didn't have a production certificate, the uh, FAA had to come once a month and spot check the, uh, the airplanes that Unfortunately, all these test pilots that were coming from the FAA had gone through Edwards, and none of them have tailwheel or float ratings. Uh -huh. so, I, so I had to go with them on all these uh, flights, and I said, well, while you guys are here, why, I'm an instructor. I can go ahead and give you tailwheel endorsement and float instructions. So I had a lot of uh, test pilots come to Moultrie to, to get checked out by me, and they said, hey, Gary, uh, Piper is looking for a test pilot. And so I went to Mr. Mall and said, you know, I, I need to move up in the world. You know, at this time, I'm, my goal is to work for Scaled Composites in uh, Dick Rutan. And Dick had told me way back when, fly as many different airplanes, 
working for many different companies as you can get test pilot experience. So I went to Mr. Mall and I said, you know, I, I'd like to go interview down at Piper Aircraft and I'll find somebody to relieve me if they hire me. And he said, that's great. Uh, when are you going? Well, it's going to be a day to drive down there and a day to drive back. And he said, I can't afford you to be gone that long. Why don't you take a mall and fly it down there? <laughs> so he, he let me take a plane and landed right at the Piper plant. And they were in, uh, Piper hired me and I flew back and, you know, got somebody else trained to take my job and then headed down to Piper. I think the important thing in that story is that how, you know, just building relationships gets you places in the aviation industry and you're, you know, you're, you're reaching out to the FAA, teaching those guys how to fly tailwheel, and you know they, they certainly return that favor. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, Piper was a lot of fun. They were still in bankruptcy, but there was really no new development going on at the time. So it was a couple years of production flight testing. And what exactly is, does a test pilot do in, in that situation? Do you basically shake down every new airplane that comes out of the factory? Yes, you're precisely right. So every airplane that rolls off the assembly line, uh, and I guess I need to back up, the, that mall um, was 1994. Okay. Uh, so at Piper, it might be a, a Warrior, it might be a Arrow, it might be a Seminole, it might be a Seneca, it might be a Malibu. Um, unfortunately, they had just ended their uh, Super Cub uh, line, so there weren't any Super Cubs coming off the line. And you, you take it out, and it's uh, making sure that, number one, the engine works, the avionics work, but you'll put it into a dive, you'll depressurize it, you'll do uh, air starts on the airplane, and you'll come back and make some adjustments either for RPM or fuel flows. And they're, believe it or not, there's always some little tweak that they have to do. So it usually took two or three uh, flights to get an airplane tweaked up perfectly. And then it, it's ready for the, uh, at that time, they'd be uh, ferried out to the dealers. Okay. Did, uh, was Piper, so 97-ish, were they developing the Meridian at that point too, or...? Was that after they were not. Uh, the only thing that we had um, in the experimental uh, was the uh, Archer uh, three, uh, where we uh, moved the some of the switches to the overhead panel. Okay. Uh, but yeah, there wasn't anything going on on the Meridian uh, other than maybe just discussions. But they they had no money for uh, experimental work. Right. Yeah. I guess they were. They did just come through bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, it was called the New Piper Company when we came out of bankruptcy. Okay, sure. I, I've seen that tag on airplanes. Mm -hmm. uh, so you guys moved down there. When were your daughters born in, in this timeline? Well, that, that was good. Uh, let me see. Uh, daughter number one uh, was actually on the aircraft carrier USS George Washington. It was a new carrier that we were building in uh, Newport News. And then my job was training officer to train the... Uh, 3,000 uh, ship's company crew and the, the 2,000 air wings and send them the firefighting. And uh, on any given day, I probably had 500 people in uh, different schools over uh, a year. But then we actually needed to take the airplane out, on, or excuse me, the aircraft carrier underway and do sea trials. Uh, 
And so we're getting ready to go out on our, our first sea trials, but my wife is uh, eight and a half months uh, pregnant. Yeah. And you know, one of the things you hear in the Navy, uh, you can either be home for the conception or the, uh, the delivery, pick one. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I got to be home for both because my wife actually delivered a week early and I got to be home for uh, the birth of our, our daughter, Amelia, named after Amelia Earhart, as you might imagine. And, you know, two days later, I was underway on the aircraft carrier. So, <laughs> and kind of the cool thing on that, uh, when we came back and the ship got uh, commissioned, uh, we uh, baptized in the Navy, you have a tradition, you take the ship's bell, which is about a 200 pound uh, brass bell. I built a table for it. And then you uh, baptize the, uh, the kids in that, that are, are being christened. And Amelia was the first one. And her name's actually engraved inside the uh, ship's bell, and you'll see that on any Navy ship. The And you put the uh, uh, salt water in there and the uh, water's from the seven seas, and then if it's a aviator baby, you put a little uh, shot of uh, JP-5 jet fuel in there. <laughs> if it's a, a nuclear reactor baby, you put a little bit of the uh, cooling water in there. And so that's uh, she that got christened in the ship's bell. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool experience. Not a lot of babies have that. And then uh, our second daughter was nine years later, and I was with uh, Cirrus Aircraft, and she's going to get uh, baptized up here. And I, the only ship that we had in town was a uh, the USS Sundu, which was a Coast Guard cutter, and the ship's bell was only about a foot around. So that wasn't quite big enough. So I took the uh, chrome spinner off an SR-20, <laughs> made a, a stand for that and we went and got a cold Lake Superior water in there and then I put a drop of 100 low lead uh, in that water when she was uh, christened and her name's Jacqueline after Jackie Cochran. Very cool. So you obviously took the job at Cirrus. What was your first assignment at Cirrus? So you're a brand new test pilot at Cirrus. So yep, this was very interesting. Uh, I had not even seen the airplane and I show up at Oshkosh and that's where we uh, I actually walked around for a couple hours looking for Cirrus nobody had even heard of Cirrus in 1997 and the plane wasn't there and I finally found a little uh, lean-to on the side of building B and I found a couple of the guys there and they said Scott's flying over uh, N1 what's N1 well that's our first airplane that's non-conforming and he comes in and we have to pull all the test equipment off it. We had the doors closed because it didn't look that great inside. We pulled off the the flight test boom and everything. And so at the end of the, the week, uh, I said, well, Scott, I've got a problem. Uh, my Blanca, I've got just enough juice to start it, but I can't talk. You know, can I fly on your uh, wing on the way back to uh, Duluth? In fact, I'd like to go to Alexandria because they can rebuild my generator. That's where the Blanca factory is. He says, great, I can do your formation checkout on the way. We'll use hand signals. So Scott was an Air Force pilot. I was Navy Rio, and we do all our talk in the air, you know, just with hand signals. So I taxi out on his uh, wing, and we our takeoff in the Blanca and the SR-20 were exactly speed matched at, you know, 140, 150 miles an hour. And he could give me signals for 
moving the trail echelon, you can use uh, wing wags and wing rocks. And we flew to uh, Alexandria, landed there, left my Blanca there uh, for the generator overhaul. Wasn't an alternator, it was a generator. And and then on the uh, 30-minute flight uh, back to uh, Duluth, he gave me the checkout on the SR-20. And then I go in the report to Pat Waddick, who is the VP of uh, engineering, said, Pat, what would you like me to do first? And he says, well, I'd like you to write a, a test program for a whole airplane parachute system. And I went, what? <laughs> I've never heard of that. And they didn't teach that at test pilot school. Yeah. So there wasn't anything to plagiarize, and that's where that was my first program. Was right up that uh, test program, and then I've been writing some articles in the uh, Copa magazine on that. So when you um, when you do the testing for a whole airplane parachute, what where do you even begin? Like, I mean, obviously you're flying level, you pull the chute, and you see if it works. Like that's probably step one, I imagine. Um, how do you even come up with a program like that? Well, step one was actually uh, how do you design a parachute that's going to hold a, uh, let me see, it was 10 times the energy of uh, what had been tested before on you know, a light aircraft. So the parachute so, hadn't been developed yet either at this point. Right, correct. Okay. You know, so it actually took us, uh, I think, 77 parachute drops out of a C-123 on a 4,000-pound uh, pallet of 55-gallon drums filled with wet sand that we would accelerate to 170 before that parachute would re release. And we blew out several of them before we got ones that would work. And then it took dozens of uh, rocket firings on the ground to figure a uh, rocket that would work. Mm -hmm. And after and then we uh put it all together on uh n1 we had fitted that airplane up as our test airplane and we were doing the uh parachute deployments uh out in uh thermal california over the uh Ocotillo wells dry lake bed um, which was uh, below sea level and that came to be very important but the the whole uh parachute program probably took us 18 months and was probably the riskiest part of the whole certification effort. What uh, what altitude did you guys do your first parachute tests from in the actual airplane? So the actual manned airplane test. So uh, N one uh, was actually uh, several hundred pounds overweight. Uh, we needed to be uh, at like uh, I think twenty five percent over, you know, for some certification uh, issue. And this was on SR-20 in the desert, and the maximum altitude it could reach at a, you know, 6 a.m. on a cool day was 10,000 feet because of the weight. So that was our deployment altitude. We uh, did slow flight, flaps deployed, we did uh, high speed, and we did spins uh, for those. And so we deploy at 10,000 feet, um, the cutaway altitude, if I remember right, we would uh, do that at 7,500 feet. And then hopefully by 5,000 feet, the airplane was recovered. Uh, yeah, let, let's be clear about this. So you guys don't land the whole airplane down. You actually get rid of the chute and then 
start flying again, right? So getting rid of the chute was far more dangerous than landing. Uh, because number one, the engine's not running. And when you release the chute, it drops like a rock at thousands of feet a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have no control. Uh, and then in the dive, once you get, and that's why we put so much weight on the firewall, hoping that that would drop the nose first because just coming down flat upside down or tail first doesn't help us. And then in the, the dive, uh, the, the engine would go up to like 29, 3000 RPM. And then you, uh, hopefully it would start again. And then, uh, we could fly the airplane away and hopefully not to fly into the chute that's descending. Oh my. If we only, if we brought it to the ground, you can't control where it was going to land and you wouldn't get any data there. We'd already built other fuselages that we could drop from 10 or 12 feet with crash dummies on board with high speed cameras. So we already knew the uh, impact loads. So there wasn't anything to be gained by actually taking this airplane to the ground. Was this your only flying example at this point? Uh, we had two. We had N1 and now we had N2. And then we actually had C1, which was a conforming airplane. And that one was being used concurrently for the certification flight tests. Okay. So obviously all of that worked out um, counterintuitive as it seems. I, a lot of times when I tell people that, oh yeah, the Sears, it, it has a parachute built in. They go, like, for the people? I'm like, no, <laughs> the whole airplane comes down under a parachute. And, and then invariably I'll show them the YouTube video of the Bahamas ditching, or, or the Caribbean ditching, I think. Um, and then they're generally pretty amazed by that. Mm -hmm. So at some point... You went from being a serious test pilot to selling the airplanes. How, how did that come about? So I'd been uh, flying as a test pilot for about four years, 97 to 2001. But you're always staying within 50 miles of uh, Duluth. And so I uh, actually had done the, the first uh, flight of the SR-22. And I went, holy smokes, this is the engine that this airplane was designed for. And I said, this is going to take the world by hotcakes. And uh, Dick Lonigan had been covering uh, the upper Midwest and Great Lakes, and he was getting ready to retire. And I said, boy, I'd like to, to do uh, sales. And what kind of sales experience do you have? Well, I've got none, but I know the airplane, and the airplane sells itself. So Cirrus took a gamble and uh, let me uh, take over the sales position. And I did that for uh, 19 years. So... That was a, and now you got to travel all around the country. And I love to literally have flown thousands of people in the airplane and sold hundreds of these. So it's absolutely an incredible airplane that sells itself if you just put the people in it. Sure. It, and am I correct? You got your MBA at some point during this as well, right? Correct. Uh, so I had started my MBA when I was in the Navy at George Washington University. But then uh, before I completed that, you know, the, uh, I, I retired, but then it became important to uh, get the new career going. So then when I was down in uh, Florida, I started finishing it up with uh, Florida Institute of Technology and the way I was paying for it was I was also uh, teaching uh, as a, a professor at Florida Institute of Technology in aviation and then using 
uh, credits from that for my MBA. And then when Cirrus called, we moved up to Duluth. Uh, Florida Institute of Technology allowed me to continue doing that online. So I basically completed half my time with uh, George Washington University and finished it up with Florida Institute of Technology. Was that helpful in, in selling airplanes? It, it seems like you you take a very natural approach to selling planes here, or, or at least it comes very natural to you. I think it did because people at the uh, time moving into a Cirrus are typically successful business owners. And so uh, they still want to you know, do cost analysis and uh, cost benefit type of things and be able to talk with them on those basis helps, but I still try to sell the plane emotionally. You know, this is great for traveling to the vacation home. You can use it for your business travel. Uh, you never really want to spreadsheet an airplane or a marriage or a house uh, type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, or having kids, uh, you know, they... Uh, the ROI but, yeah. on kids has not been very good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, but, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, I had a, a medical uh, bachelor's and a aerospace masters and then an MBA you know it's a totally different way you know it's case studies and basic accountant type stuff so it's kind of neat to see how different you know, academics uh, match up they're all totally different I would say that aerospace is the hardest but the MBA was certainly the most interesting mm-hmm. yeah I, I think case studies are just a great way to learn in general too it, you know, makes everything relevant. Um, so you, uh, would, would we say you retired from Cirrus in, in January? Correct. Uh, I've got my uh, type rating in the chat. I kind of handed off the uh, the sales size to uh, Jake Feetstra, who was taking over the upper uh, Midwest. And I got the type rating, was flying the, uh, the jet around. Um, but then it, it's, it's kind of a good opportunity for, uh, you know, the younger uh, pilots to step in and have an opportunity. I had mine and you know, I was 65 and looking at traveling and we had some uh, parents that we really wanted to, on both sides, that we wanted to go down, spend some time uh, helping them uh, transition. So it was sort of the right time. And then uh, Arista Aircraft had been talking to me for a couple of years and it was, it's an opportunity. I could still do the sales, but do it from a home office. And that worked great. But after about a month, because I didn't have a demo plane anymore with Cirrus, uh, my wife went, uh, this driving stuff uh, really takes a lot of time. So my wife says, we got to find a used Cirrus. And we found a SR20. Uh, so that's what we used to get around in. Very cool. Congratulations. I didn't know about the, the new addition there. Yeah, so the great it's not a uh, fiki, but the great thing is I don't have to fly in ice anymore. Right. Where it was a, a daily occurrence for me when I was working. Yeah, I, I was looking at some of the flights you were doing, and you know, you you had almost like a airline liability in terms of the flights you were making, and and that's coming out of Duluth. <laughs> yeah, we only had icing forecast seven months a year. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like like the rest of the country is just fine, and you guys are you're happily shoveling a foot of snow. Um, yeah, that's that's quite a testament to the aircraft. 
Now, I, I wanted to pick your brain on something here. Um, so I'm always kind of casually, secretly looking at airplanes, right? And, you know, back in 2000, you know, Cirrus comes out with this revolutionary product. Um, you know, you have Bonanzas have been made for basically 50 years the same way. They got a little bit bigger, they get a little heavier, they get fancier electronics, but there wasn't a real big change, right? Cirrus uh -huh. comes along and just kind of upends the game. Now looking at, um, I, I fell into a YouTube rabbit hole with the kind of European ultralight. I, I don't know if they're even called ultralights, but it, it's like the two seat, they're about 1300 pounds gross, but they got turbocharged Rotax engines putting out 180 knots. Um, hey, have you, what do you consider, I mean, to someone like me who mostly travels alone, that looks really interesting if it can be IFR equipped. What do you think is going to be the next kind of Cirrus event where everything's going to change again? Well, this would be me talking. Uh, I certainly think uh, electric propulsion would be something uh, very interesting, but we're certainly going to need to solve the, uh, the battery energy problem and weight problem. So uh, aerodynamics is really driven by the engine, whether it's gas, electric, or turbine, and the planes are built around the, uh, the power plant. So that's the biggest limiting factor, I'd say, right now. Do you see, um, so I, I just bought a hybrid car. I, I've worked on a lot of Teslas, but I ended up buying a hybrid myself and, and I really like the versatility of that. What do you think of a hybrid type of powertrain? I mean, there, there's certain phases of flight where you need the full 300 horsepower and then there's phases of flight where you're using 150 horsepower, right? Correct. So I'm a member of Society of Experimental Test Pilots, and I would love to go to the, the national conventions, which uh, certainly have been uh, put on pause right now, to learn some of this new technology uh, coming out. But I, I think that would be the, the avenue to go. But the challenge is certifying that engine when you might only do one or two thousand of those engines a year. And it's obviously a a multi-million dollar certification effort. So I think the we've got to build the uh, pilot base. And I think that's, uh, COVID's allowed thousands of pilots to go learn to fly. And the, the pre-owned airplane market is just booming because all these pilots are buying a pre-owned airplane to start on. Cirrus has probably backed up a, a year on orders. And I don't know how the other companies are doing. But I think as we get more pilots out there, uh, we certainly have the infrastructure airport-wise to support more. Uh, I think uh, you'll see some of these uh, sport aircraft and uh, new engine technology coming. But uh, right now, the, the standard Lycoming and Continental engine is kind of the proven engine that the certified airplanes will stick with until you get a certified new power plant. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, I, I think that's a good way to look at it, is focusing on increasing demand first and then marketing towards that. And, and I think Cirrus does a really good job of that in showing people that aren't necessarily born and bred pilots, like, hey, if, if you had this plane, which isn't that terribly hard to fly, 
you know, think of what that can do for your business. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly think about that a lot when I have to fly to Dallas first before going to Sacramento. You know, I kind of ask myself, why aren't I flying myself? So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest advantage of general aviation is the flexibility. You can go that afternoon, you can go the next morning. To, when I book an airline flight, sometimes it takes me an hour to, to go through them and book everything. And then the the client may call, well, nope, well, I don't need you after all. And then you have to unravel it all where you might already be locked in. Yeah. With the general aviation, the short notice ability to lock one in or cancel short notice is a, a big plus. Absolutely. And I mean, the one good thing that came out of COVID, I think, with airlines is, you know, everything's cancelable now. You know, same with right. hotels and car rentals. That's certainly been easy. Um, so before, before we cut you loose here, you've been very generous with your time. I, I like asking pilots who have obviously done this for a very long time, it, you know, what are... What are some key tenets of flying safely that, that, you know, maybe you've picked up through the military and certainly your time test flying airplanes and, and just logging, but I imagine it's thousands and thousands of hours. Um, what, what do you wish all general aviation pilots knew or, or were thinking about every flight? I would say one thing you get from the, the military that you don't see very often in either airline or general aviation is the debrief. You, uh, in flight training, you brief what you're going to go do, and then you, you fly, and, and then you, uh, and sometimes you do a debrief. But we don't carry that on into our personal flying. So maybe after we we land, instead of hopping in the rental car and heading off, you should at least sit down with yourself or at least uh, your passengers and debrief. Hey, here's what I did, or you know, here's how I could have done something better. Uh, uh, so I, I think a, a de- honest debrief after each flight would be good. Uh, the other thing I always recommend to even my people going into Cirrus, uh, don't just stay in the Cirrus. I would love for you at the one-year point to go out and get your tailwheel rating. Well, why? Because it will really teach you to use your rudder. And it's just going to make you a better pilot. It's a lot of fun. You can do it in a weekend for fifteen hundred bucks and have a blast. Yeah. And then the next year, I want you to go get your float rating. Well, why? Well, you can do it in a weekend for fifteen hundred bucks, but it teaches you manage energy. You don't have any brakes, and you've got to come up to that dock with just enough to reach the dock, but not too much that you smash into the dock. And you don't have any wind socks on lakes. And it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And your third year, I want you to go spend 1500 bucks and do some uh, limited aerobag training. Because in normal flight, we're only using one-sixth of the airplane's envelope. Once you've gone upside down, you realize the airplane's just as controllable. And you can solve a lot of problems by pushing forward on the yoke. So, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, so like an upset training or, or an actual just aerobatics course? or is uh, Just basic aerobatics. You can okay. do it in a I, – I usually suggest a, an extra. Uh, uh, and, you know, keep that first flight short, 45 minutes. And, but then you, you learn what accelerated stalls are like and, uh, 
and how you can fly upside down very comfortably. Uh, and then people don't panic with a normal stall. Sure. Um, do you have a, so going back to the debrief, do you have a specific format or, or, or checklist in your head that you try and hit for debrief points? You know, I just kind of walk through the, the flight from uh, my flight planning with weather, my f- walk around on the airplane. You know, I just came back in my SR-20 and I heard some vibration. And I, when I landed, I found a, a wheel fairing that a screw was loose by a quarter inch that was causing the flap the geez, why didn't I get underneath the airplane and check my screws? Sure. Um, you know, you know that could have scared my passengers. I didn't know what it was. It sounded like a seatbelt flapping. Uh, and, you know, I, I did my walk around, but I only looked at the top of the airplane and glanced it. I didn't get underneath to look at it. Well, this tells me not to be cavalier and assume. So mm-hmm. it would have taken me two minutes to look underneath the airplane, and I would have seen that loose screw. Uh, but, yes, I would just... Debrief uh, the pre-flight, the weather and route, and my my landing, and how could I have done this better? Do you um, do you record your flights at all, or, or do you, do you pull any data from the engine and, and things like that as part of that debrief? I don't. I'm not that tech savvy uh, uh, to do that to recreate the flights and look at the the stuff. Uh, you know, I do use the airplane to save time, so for me to, to take an hour and do those things, uh, I suppose if I was doing it for uh, experimental flight analysis or somebody's looking at an airplane, I could do that, but I, I don't go in that much detail. I'm sure there's other people that are much more tech savvy that could do it quicker and recreate it on four flight and all, sure. particularly a flight instructor, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. there's, there's some great apps out there that map your airplane and you know, on a map and you can see how badly you were at holding altitude, for example. It's it's very sobering. <laughs> well, Gary, I thank you so much for your time this morning. We got a, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Got a good seventy minutes in here. Um you have any anything else you want to add? No, just uh get out, enjoy uh, the wonderful flying and the weather and uh, try to stay current on your your night and your instrument work. Awesome. Well, thank you so much and uh, hope to run into you soon. Take care. And Mr. Black has left the building. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'd certainly like to have Gary back and uh, talk about some other topics, specifically with Cirrus certification. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want more content like this, the best way to do that would be to show your support by subscribing. Leave a good review too, that is always helpful, get some feedback. And check out the show notes too at aviana.net slash deviationapprove, all one word. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.